Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 27, discussing Excalibur 26, the times they are a change in, in which the cross time caper is still over, but we're traveling across time anyway, into a flashback issue that connects with Days of Future Past and Days of Future Present. We'll talk about it. Excalibur number 26 was originally published in August 1990. The creative team is Michael Higgins on writing, Ron Lim on pencils, Joe Rubenstein on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Augustine Mass on lettering, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. But on this Easter day, when Christ rose from the dead, may one night here through victory in arms find the grace to draw the sword and be king. We have a writerly guest with us here today to help us understand some of the um, questionable writerly choices in this issue, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your regular scribes. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I do lots of writing and talking about comics and representation for academic spaces and popular ones like the website Comics XF and the podcast Three Panel Contrast with Andrew from this podcast. I'm sometimes on Twitter, usually under the podcast account because expressing my own opinions under my real name on the Bird app stresses me the heck out. When I am on Twitter, I'm usually sharing whatever I'm writing and tweeting feel-good stuff about my boy, Kurt Wagner, doing my due diligence as his unofficial PR manager. I am joined, as always, by Mav. You're up. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav because that is a nickname. I am the host (laughs) of another podcast. A podcast is an internet web show. I am talking like this because everyone in this issue explains their every thoughts in the most boring way possible, as though you, the reader, were idiots. Hi. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, like, even just doing the bit, I annoyed myself. I hope no one turned off. (laughs) Because... Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, you can probably tell where I'm going to fall on this particular issue. But hi, my name is Mav. Uh, (laughs) I discuss pop culture and comics and stuff like Anna was talking about. I have another podcast, Couchbox Popcast. Like, I've like discombobulated myself just because, oh, my God. Um, Andrew, talk. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, introduce yourselves to our listeners. I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. I am a co-host of Three Panel Contrast with Anna and I'm the project lead for a social media thing called the Claremont Run, um, which is a big study of Chris Claremont's work. And I'm excited today to talk to you about Days of Future Present, even though that's not the subject for today. 
Oh, it can be. I would much rather. (laughs) (laughs) I was literally just going to say, Andrew, I was going to come back with, well, I hope you're excited to explain Days of Future Present, but I guess they (laughs) are. So we're looking forward to that. (laughs) So we are joined, as I mentioned, by a writerly guest who also knows plenty about the X-Men. The pod is over the moon to welcome Darby Harn. Welcome, Darby. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm over the moon to be here. This podcast (laughs) is literally my favorite thing of 2021. we can't live up to that if we had you on for this issue (laughs) no it's it's like excalibur is one of my favorite things this podcast like i said absolutely one of my favorite things so thank you thank you for having me on i love it oh my goodness well thank you so much got so much higher for this now i know i'm so nervous now Let's tell our listeners a little bit about you, Darby. So Darby Harn is the author of the sci-fi superhero novel Ever the Hero, which Publishers Weekly called an entertaining debut that uses superpowers as a metaphor to delve into class politics in an alternate America. That sounds awesome. His fiction appears in Strange Horizons, Interzone, Shimmer, and other venues. He is also a senior writer for Screen Rant and a contributor to Star Wars News Net and Movie News Net. He is also part of the Movie News Network podcast team, talking all things movies, TV, and pop culture. So so obviously, Darby, you've already told our listeners that you're a huge Excalibur fan, and I know you a little bit from Twitter and through your work a little bit now, but tell us about your Excalibur origin story. Do you go way back with this series? I do. I go back to the beginning. Um, this was a comic book I found on the rack at, I, it's it, there, where I was reading comics was a place, it was a store downtown where I live and called the National Cigar Store. So <laughs> comics have this weird... They're bound up. That sort of, you know, that old sort of paper smell, book smell is bound up with the smell of cigars. So it's like this weird, every time I open a comic book, I smell cigars. But I was reading it. uh, So this was 88 and I was reading comics at the time. I couldn't afford I think Excalibur was $1.50 when it came out. I simply couldn't afford it. So I'd read it on the rack and I was just fascinated by it because I was a huge X-Men fan. But I was also really into a bunch of the comics that were kind of happening at that time. So obviously Watchmen. But another one that was a personal favorite of mine was Cinder and Ash which was uh, Jerry Conway and Jose Garcia Lopez. And I absolutely adored that. And I thought when Excalibur came out, I thought this is going to be like the serious grown-up Marvel. This is going to be like the mature X-Men <laughs> for some reason. It didn't quite happen, right? But it, I fell in love with the characters, obviously. The sort of the family dynamic and the, the sort of the sense of misfits that would, it appealed to me greatly. Aww. I mean, how would you... How do you sort of conceive, I mean, sort of in retrospect, but or at the time, like, how do you sort of conceive as Excalibur being separate from the rest of the X-Men franchise? I mean, it's not totally separate, obviously, Mm -hmm. but what do you think of kind of the identity of this series? It was just so immediately, it had that intrinsic sort of the British quality that I associate with, uh, I think most of us do, with a lot of comic books at the time. V for Vendetta, obviously they're different subject matter, but that sort of Alan Moore, and then a little bit later, I started reading Sandman. And there's something about it, but it had this sort of gonzo tone, the sort of Terry Pratchett, Monty Python tone that was so unique to Marvel, maybe all the comics, I don't know, but that I, I really enjoyed and never really rubbed off on me as a writer, that sort of that tone. The comedic tone, but the but I love the characters. I loved Kitty. I loved Rachel. I loved Kurt. And so I was just I was just all in from the beginning. 
Well, can I ask you, because we haven't talked about this for a while, because we talked about this way back on our first episode about sort of the reasons that we're revisiting the series and why we think it's valuable to revisit it. And since you've said that the podcast is your favorite thing of 2021, why do you think it's valuable to revisit Excalibur? Why have we done a good thing and not made a terrible, terrible mistake by doing an issue by issue read through of this book? Oh, it's definitely not terrible. It's uh, I have sort of two reasons. I have sort of a uh, sort of a general reason and a personal reason, maybe. Um, uh, the general reason, I think that the opening of the book in particular is is so fixed in sort of this grief and trauma of what has happened yeah. uh, or what Kitty and, and Kurt believe has happened to the X-Men. And we're living through this moment, this last 18 months or so, is real, real grief and trauma in the world. And I think Excalibur has a great appeal i think right now the early part of it does uh for folks who are maybe feeling dislocated uh feeling burdened by grief and are looking for something maybe escapist but yet and silly certainly at times but that also reflective of maybe what they're feeling and i think that first up until inferno or so that first sort of group of issues i think does a great job of sort of orienting that sort of feeling and then for me personally came at the right time because when i found the podcast because I was uh, in my writing and just in my life, I was sort of burdened by all of this stuff and, you know, this, everything that's gone on, we've all, you know, it's been a very difficult year and a half or so. And that sort of anger and despair and confusion, it was sort of filtering into my writing in sort of unhealthy ways, in particular, this book that's coming out later. And um, I, I found Excalibur and I found that, uh, that sort of that, that spirit and that, that sort of light at the end of the tunnel that I had found in 1988 again through the podcast. And so I do have to say I'm, I'm deeply indebted to you guys Aww. and the podcast because I, I don't know what would have happened with at least this book uh, if I had not found it when I did. So. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. And thank you so much oh. for sharing that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I won't go down a whole rabbit hole of all the stuff that I've been through in the last year that partly led mm-hmm. to kind of want to, wanting to revisit this book and have some positive feelings. But I'm right there with you in terms of, you know, there being a mix of sort of personal and professional reasons that we wanted to revisit this book at this time. Thank you so much sure. for sharing that. Uh, thank you, guys. All right, let's do a plot summary and get back into some specifics of this particular issue. And I'm, I'm so sorry that we didn't have you on for like a bit more of an uplifting issue, but um, <laughs> we'll hopefully still find some, some stuff to talk about. So let's do that plot summary. Excalibur number 26 opens with Rachel in the midst of a nightmare. And what a nightmare it is. She's flashing back to her one-time lover, Franklin Richards, being killed by a sentinel in the hellscape reality where she's from. But at some point, the nightmare becomes a calming fantasy and Rachel wakes up in the sunniest mood she's ever been in. She chastises Kitty for being too serious and declares they need to go shopping. Elsewhere, Nightcrawler is counseling Megan that she needs to let go of Brian and grab hold of him. Brian comes in, yells at everybody, and storms off. This prompts Megan to follow Kurt's advice. She scoops Kurt up in her arms and flies off with him, heading somewhere, anywhere, as long as it's private. From there, we check in on Rachel and Kitty on their shopping trip. When Kitty wanders off to buy software, Rachel is shocked to encounter an old, more than friend in Franklin Richards. Specifically, the adult Franklin Richards from her time, not the kid from the present reality. They embrace and ditch Kitty to get Cappuccino, declaring nothing will ever keep them apart again. Eventually, Kitty, Rachel, and Franklin are reunited and return together to the lighthouse. Rachel and Franklin go to the living room to talk, while Kitty retreats to her lab, but Lockheed won't let her work, insisting there's something off about Franklin. Kitty tries to investigate and finds her phasing power is futzed. Every time she tries to phase through the ceiling, she finds herself back in the lab. We jump to Rachel and Franklin, creating a psi link that quickly turns creepy, and then back to Kitty, who's there to greet Megan and Kurt as they 
they arrive home from their, I don't know, date. Kitty explains there's something off about Rachel's long-lost beau, and they hatch a plan to snap Rachel out of her trance. This very wild plan involves Kitty dressing up as Kate Pride from the future, while Megan impersonates Jean Grey as the Black Queen. Kurt teleports them to the scene of Rachel making out with the man who seemed to be Franklin. They manage to shake Rachel free of the interloper's psychic control. He becomes Captain Britain, then Franklin, and finally, Mastermind. Rachel is angry. She assaults Mastermind with a whole lot of Phoenix Force, but stops short of killing him at Kitty's insistence. Later, everybody meets up at Muir Island, where Moira reveals she's found the real Brian in Mastermind's cell. Apparently, Mastermind had replaced Brian some time ago, which explains at least some of his weird behavior of late, supposedly. Mastermind, meanwhile, is back in his cell, though he thinks he's far away. Rachel's made him believe he was granted his greatest wish to be one with the universe. Okay, so Mav kind of prepared us to have a bit of a gripey tone in this issue, and I think that we're probably all going to have complaints, but I think that we're going to end up having slightly different ones, perhaps, which could produce an interesting conversation, and we'll try to find something to praise. I'm sure there's something that we can figure out. I kind of <laughs> liked the clothes, so I can talk about that a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, you're not wrong. <laughs> so before we start with our ranting or raving, um, I just wanted to situate this issue a little bit within the X-Men continent. So the main intertexts for this issue are Days of Future Past, a storyline that ran in Uncanny X-Men 141 and 142 back in 1981. Um, those are, of course, the comics that introduce us to Rachel for the first time. The second relevant comic storyline, which was published sort of concurrently with this comic, and I say sort of because it occurred in a lot of different comics, so there is overlap, but the whole story wasn't finished yet. Um, so that story would be Days of Future Present. So it was a crossover event from the annuals of Fantastic Four, X-Factor, New Mutants, and Uncanny X-Men. Um, none of this necessarily matters that much, although it's perhaps worth speaking briefly about Days of Future Present, since that's where the Rachel Franklin relationship is largely from. So I was wondering, Andrew, if I could put you on the spot as our Claremont scholar to do a little snippet summary of what the heck Days of Future Present is. Why does it exist and what was it trying to accomplish? Okay. <laughs> just, a, just a small little thing to ask of you. Yeah. Okay. So, so first up, in Days of Future Past, Rachel and Franklin are together. Mm -hmm. uh, it's established. The extent of the relationship we don't really know, but it's kind of implied. Uh, and he dies, as we see here. And then in Days of Future Present, it's, it's like really similar to this story in its conceptual framework. Franklin is kind of brought back from like memories and love and stuff like that. Uh, but he's sapping the energy of his host, which would be Phoenix. Uh, and um, eventually she has to let him go. Uh, there's three other annuals that are connected to that story. You honestly don't need to read them. Um, they're, they're, not, they're not great. Um, and Claremont's story um, in um, Uncanny X-Men Annual number 14, which is the fourth and final part of Days of Future Present, is really good. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's illustrated by Art Adams, um, again, Beautiful. killing it, and has the greatest sombrero in the history of the X-Men <laughs> franchise. <laughs> Uh, and it's poignant and it's wistful and it does everything that this issue wants to do, um, which is why it's really weird to release this issue um, when they release this issue. Yeah, because this issue came out before that one, right? Uh, this issue came out one month after Days of Future. One month Present. after, okay. Well, one, one month, month after. after the final part of Days of Future. Yes, that's correct. Again, having read it then, it was astounding. It made no sense even then. Because when this issue comes out, you know, we are, have, we just finished this Days of Future Present thing. 
we are in the midst of putting all of this together. Excalibur has been on a cross time caper. So it actually makes um when, and they still were on the cross time caper when the annual series started. So like, it wasn't clear when anything was supposed to be happening. The continuity in Excalibur filling issues, which we'll talk about in a little bit, doesn't make sense anyway. There was so much that was hard to understand and particularly the X-Men annual. I'm maybe a little more forgiving on the other parts of Days of Future Present, but, you know, Andrew's right. You don't need any of them. (laughs) Like, they're just, they're they're, they're a crossover because at this time, Marvel was just sort of doing this thing where, hey, our annuals are going to be crossovers. Let's just do that. And and there was, I mean, it was just the thing that was done. So they're a crossover conceptually, not so much in, like, any meaningful sense. But this story was really, really good. You could tell that Claremont cared about these characters, and I think he knew that this might be the only resolution he was ever going to get to what he wanted to do with what he wanted Gene and Rachel to be with each other because I didn't I, he he knew he might not get another crack at it I, I feel like so there's a story that I feel and Andrew I expect you probably feel the same way I feel like it's poignant I feel yeah. like it is heartfelt um, I feel like it's maybe not where he wanted to go but it is him reacting to you know the forces of how comic them works and I it's it's a nice close to that series that I would so much be, rather be talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I was just a bit but curious about. I was curious about the chronology since it's strange that this issue is so similar, and yet I'm like, was this issue written previously or subsequently? Because you would think, as a fill-in issue that's set prior to the cross time caper, this could have been written at any time, and they were just going to slot it in when they needed an issue. But yeah. um, we're not really sure. So it had to be. It had to be a year earlier. Yeah, and we should say that that was Marvel Comics policy for yes. like decades. They would they would shelve backup fill-in issues that they could throw in as an emergency release valve. And if they don't get to it, it shows up in a Marvel Comics Presents. Exactly. That, that was that was how things were done. It really feels like it on this one. It it, it just it feels slotted in, especially since it it even opens with and yes, this is another cross time caper yeah. previous thing. And I'm like, yeah. Eh. well let's come to you darby with some first impressions were you kind of as grumpy about this issue as we were what was your kind of (laughs) general your general vibe after after consuming this comic book yeah i'm pretty grumpy i i do have to i positive i'll start there i guess i i do like ron lim uh he's he's not he's not alan davis but I do like Ron Lim and, and this is pretty good. It's it's it better than his sort of earlier efforts that he did on the felon issues, I thought. I feel like the biggest problem with this issue, other than just I feel like they wrote this like in like Michael uh is it Michael Higgins um mm-hmm. wrote this in like five minutes. And you can just tell with like just the speed at which they motor through everything, like the whole thing. Oh, it's Mastermind. It's just like, you know, Moira walks into the cell and it's like, oh, he's gone. And then it's just, you know, it just sort of motors through everything. I I think the big problem for me is I'm a huge Rachel fan. And this is sort of a case example, I think, of the problem that the comics have always had with Rachel post Claremont, at least. They're always trying to place Rachel. They're trying to locate her. You know, what is her role? Where does she come from? What's her what's her past? What's her future? And this in this especially coming off the heels of Days of the Future uh, present. Uh, this is just another example of that, that they're just trying to figure her out. You know, what what is her 
orientation in relation to everything and to these other characters, the, the past, what's the future going to be? There's a line in here somewhere about an editorial line and where it's just sort of the sly sort of a maybe this will be, I think when Katie puts on the Kate costume, maybe it'll be her costume in the future. They don't know. <laughs> and like to this day, like 30 years later, they still don't know what to do with Rachel, which is very painful for me personally. <laughs> But um, so to me, that was the biggest thing that is like they're they just don't know what to do. And this is sort of more of that. Yeah, I mean, we keep talking about <laughs> I mean, like, we've probably been giving it too much credit. I mean, talking about Rachel's circular trauma and trying to make that meaningful and everything. Right. But I mean, I do wonder from time to time how much this is simply reducible to them not knowing what to do with her. So they keep repeating the same stories because no one's sure how to move this character forward. Yeah. Or they try to slaughter into the Phoenix role. Uh, of her mother, right? Just by having her go through the exact same things that her mom went through. And, and there's a there's a repetition to that as well that doesn't really work for the character's forward momentum. It doesn't work be also because, I mean, yes, Kurt was there, but he's the only consistent and he's a different guy now, right? Like, right. Um, the, these are not the X-Men that Jean went through this with. Not even Kitty was really there yet, right? Kitty was no. just showing up in the comics. The, the relationship isn't the same. Rachel is not Jean. The storyline hasn't earned it, especially since they clearly didn't know when this story was going to appear, right? It shows up and it's sort of, uh, we've got to read Darby, you said it, it goes quickly. I think it's because they had to resolve what maybe could have been a four-issue story or a 40-issue story if Claremont had done it, right? <laughs> you know, because when he did it, it was 40 issues, right? And yep. like anybody else could have done it in four. This is 22 pages. It's rushed. I made my joke at the beginning with the way people talk. People do that throughout this issue with where um, like where they just kind of they explain what they're thinking as they're thinking it in order to make the story move around even so much as kitty as kitty says and my motivation for going shopping is that i want to buy some of that computer software and i'm like no one talks like this it's not a dated thing no one ever spoke like that <laughs> it's, a, it's just what are you doing there was a lot of that i do love ron lynn's artwork this is um maybe yeah, he's doing my, good work it's one of my favorite filling issues to date um as far as the artists go and like i actually think he does a great job here but there, the story good is good physical so comedy and like mm -hmm. facial expressions there's a few panels that i really enjoyed on that level if you separate them from the context and the larger story <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I was a little bit like defending. Well, no, I, we've had a couple of positive issues, and then we're sort of coming back to one that's not so solid. So you know, we're balancing it out. Can I point out one thing yeah. about Ron Lim's art? For sure. Okay, so we talked about this with the Davis image of Phoenix um, reaching towards Widget in the Cross Time Caper. The second panel of this issue is really visually suggestive and really falls into that trope from like horror movies or comics where women experiencing nightmares is hypersexualized. That's it. <laughs> That's uh, I was, I was going to talk about that in relation to some of the kind of the sexualized violence themes we have in this issue, because everything that happens here in terms of the threat she's presented with is deeply, deeply sexualized. And that begins on the very yeah. beginning of this comic. So I'm glad that you pointed it out because if you didn't, I would have, but yeah, that's a very sexualized image. And then she has the nightmare, which is very intense. And then she has relief afterwards as though and also it's a, goes to sleep. Yeah. 
Mm, so it's a post-coital relief, right? Um, what I was going to say just about Higgins and Lim is that where I was sort of a little bit apologetic of our last Higgins Lim issue, I sort of made the argument that I sort of liked it. It was an Excalibur greatest hits. It had a silver agey feel. I could kind of accept it on that level. I was more accepting of it there because of the nature of the story. It was a goofy demon druid story that didn't really mm. matter to continuity. It didn't really matter to anybody's <laughs> character development. I could sort of forgive it on that level. This is a very serious story about sexualized violence and I don't appreciate that tone for this issue. Right. So that's why I'm going a little bit harder on this one than I did on the last Higgins and, and Lim one. Because you're absolutely right, Mav, and it's just that, yeah, I was a little bit like, oh, I thought that was sort of funny in the last Higgins Lim issue, yeah. but it's like, well, I like the last not one. as charming the last one here. Was fun. I think that you can have, I'm, I'm using the word fun very broadly here. You can have an issue that is fun, even when it's serious, right? You can have something yeah. that is an, enjo an enjoyable read. And I think this could be an enjoyable story. I think the trauma of a displaced in time woman trying to deal with the loss of a love and being manipulated. There is an interesting version of this story that is not on this page. And I, given that it's the exact same creative team, I, I don't think they're not capable of doing an interesting story because I like the Demon Druid story. It's ridiculous. On that episode, I said it's, it's a throwback to an issue that made me go read the original Thor issue. This does not make me want to read Days of Future Present other than the fact that I happen to know that it's better. So like in order, if I'm reading Days of Future Present, it's to wash this from my head. It's not to, <laughs> it's not, it's not because I want to know more about these characters. It's because I want to replace these characters. And that's a disservice to characters that I love including franklin um yeah, i yeah. actually i actually think that franklin who's not you've given the spoilers already of how the issue is it's not even him but to the extent that mastermind is impersonating him i, I think it is a disservice to every version of franklin the future past version of franklin and the at this time modern child version of franklin and nobody calls him scrapper which makes me sad <laughs> specific complaint <laughs> it really is well and we'll get into other stuff i mean i find um higgins who's been on the book we've talked about this he's it's not like he's out of nowhere right i find his understanding of the megan and nightcrawler relationship oh, wrong yeah. i find his understanding <laughs> of the brian relationship with the rest of the team wrong i yep. find the, so i just want to do my continuity bug real quick because it like i tried to figure this out as far as i could tell this happens between pages 18 and 19 of Excalibur number 11. And the only reason I, I know this is because Kitty has her moment back then where she accidentally phased her clothes off and then was naked in front of Rachel and Alistair. And then on the next page, it says, considerably later, still downstairs in Kitty's basement laboratory. And I think because uh, when I read that story, I thought considerably later was, you know, an hour or two later. But in order for this to make sense, for these fill-in issues to make sense, I have to decide that considerably later is like three weeks. <laughs> Yeah. Um, because Kitty got Widget in that issue and they leave for the cross time caper in that issue. So considerably later had to be weeks later or nothing makes sense. And that bugs me in these stories because if you're trying to make the stories make sense, if you're insisting that this is a story that has something to do with the cross time caper because they said so, then like you're forcing me to make to think about these issues that I don't want to think about in a way that Demon Druid didn't, right? Demon Druid was just like, hey, you know, at some point in the past, <laughs> let's have some fun. 
right? This is like, hey, think about trying to place this. That bothers me. It it just it makes it problematic to try and follow this and then try and try to enjoy the story. It, it wants to insert itself this story in future past, in future present. It wants to it wants me to do this work that I don't want to do. Well, can I come back to Darby with a writerly question? And it sort of has to do with how a fill-in issue works and how we kind of manage continuity storytelling. But I'll ask it a little bit more specifically. Do you see Higgins trying to imitate Claremont here? Or do you see him going in a different direction where he's just doing his own thing in kind of a style that he thinks anyway is vaguely reminiscent of Excalibur? Like, how did you conceive of the way he was handling fill-in duties here? That's interesting. I, I do think it, it is somewhat an imitation. It's an attempt to sort of do Claremont-isms. And you see that in sort of, particularly in some of the tropes in the relationships, Kit and uh, Rachel and Kitty go shopping again. Uh, Megan and Kurt do whatever they do again. <laughs> and Brian is just Brian again. And I feel like, you know, some of the talkiness that Mav was talking about and the, the sort of the trying to juggle all these balls of like continuity and sort of look what I can do. I feel like is, I think he's tried to do his best Claremont, which guilty I, I've tried to do too. Writing, <laughs> but, but like, you know, it's very hard for sure. So Worthy goal. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Because if you're being a fill-in writer or artist, I mean, what should your goal be? Like, should your goal be to mimic what was already done? Or should your goal be to offer something a little bit different than you were getting with the other writer or artist, you know, just to play up your own individuality and novelty? I I would say myself, I, I, I think you should always be true to the characters because I, especially in X-Men, I, a character is everything. And then, but do your own thing because that's how folks distinguish themselves. I mean, Claremont is Claremont because he did his own thing and so on. And so I think when people come on and they sort of bring their own perspective, because the only thing you bring as an artist to these stories, which are basically just more or less the same story over and over and over again, the only thing new about it is you. So bring you to it. And I don't, I don't know really anything about Michael Higgins, so I can't say, but I, I don't, I don't get any sense of him in this at all yeah i mean when we talked about the last issue we talked about it feeling a little bit pastiche and you know i said again in this episode you know that phrase greatest hits although <laughs> we debated that phrase because <laughs> well what did andrew say about the last higgins limb issue that it wasn't like going to see your favorite band it was going to see a cover band yeah and um, I could definitely see that complaint here. Um, let's talk a little bit more specifically about the Rachel storyline. I've already brought up the sexualized violence angle, and I want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, so we're revisiting a Grey, a member of the Grey family, being manipulated in a sexualized manner by Mastermind, again. Not even the first time we've talked about this on this podcast. So I would definitely describe this as sexualized violence, putting this comic within a long and rather gross tradition as Women in Refrigerators documents a huge proportion of female superheroes have been victims of sexualized violence. So this is a topic I know a thing or two about and have a feeling or two about, but without getting into a rant just yet, because I want to bring everybody else into the conversation. One of the basic things we can look for when trying to evaluate a storyline involving sexualized violence is what is that violence doing for the characters involved? Like whose subjectivity is it serving? And is it serving that subjectivity in productive ways? Because obviously sexualized violence is an important real life issue that should be represented in superhero comics. But how and why it's included in a story matters a lot. So I want to kick this back to our writerly guest to ask, 
do you feel that what happens to Rachel here, including the inclusion of sexualized violence, is sort of productive for her character? Is this like character building? Do we learn something important about her? Is there a point to including sexualized violence in this story? What do you think? I, I don't. I, I don't feel like it really leads to anything for Rachel. I feel like this entire story is sort of treading water in a lot of ways. And I, maybe that was just the goal. It's a fill-in issue. But what is she? I don't even get a great sense of Rachel's journey. She's like, at the beginning, she's like, oh my God, Franklin, you're back. And then at the end, she's like, well, I, I missed Kate too. And it's, <laughs> he's just sort of, he's just sort of there and gone. There's no real sense of depth or dimension to the story at all this doesn't really do anything it's problematic on a number of levels you guys have talked about this a little bit in previous episodes in terms of these sort of you know the the, just sexuality in general in this series and there's all these sort of attempts at trying to do something that's not being done it doesn't always work Rachel is uh, more than the other characters, maybe the exception occurred, is very sexualized in this series. Um, so to see this doesn't really work for me. And I think, you know, what if there was a narrative value to it, if there was a character value to it, I don't know what it would be. Yeah, I mean, my most charitable thing would be to show her resisting the possession of Mastermind, but we've already seen that before. So. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead, Andrew, if you have thoughts. No, no, you, you go ahead. I was just supporting your observation oh no 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 that's okay because i'd be interested to hear what you think about it because obviously you've done a lot of work about as as crack.com has described you've done a lot of work about sexual themes in x-men comics via the claremont run (laughs) have we mentioned that on the pod before what was the title of that i think i made a joke about it it was um (laughs) something kinkiest deep dive or something like that yeah, it was I should fabulous. know. I should have it on yeah. T-shirts or something. It, it should you be really on your should. desk. It should be like <laughs> on your tombstone one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Obviously, um, Days of Sorry, um, the original Dark Phoenix Saga does explore sexual violence in really meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it does fall into sensationalizing it at times, for sure, particularly in the illustration. Um, but here you have Rachel, exactly as you're saying, Anna. Her, her arc here, if you will, is just asserting her agency and defying the power. But we've seen her do that about six times now uh, over the course of Excalibur. So you're just subjecting her to this sexual violence. I I mean, you're sort of trying to justify it by, no, no, look, she overcame it, but you keep doing this to her. So at, at some point it becomes just sensationalism. Yeah, I mean, I essentially agree with you, Andrew. It's just the long buildup of Dark Phoenix Saga 2 and how character-focused it was. Because, I mean, I don't want to come across as that I'm saying we shouldn't do these types of stories and that we shouldn't do them in potentially problematic ways because it's often the problematicness and complicatedness of a story like this that makes it so productive. There's a reason we're still talking about Dark Phoenix Saga. It's good in part because it's super complicated. It's good in part because it's not a simple story. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's a good story. And yet this story is not that story. yeah, sure. Go ahead, Matt. No, that's exactly my thought. I think that there is a good version of this story. We often, I don't want to say we, because we implies the, the four of us. As a whole, comic fandom on online will often, um, in the wake of women in refrigerators, for instance, will say, oh, well, this does sexualize violence, therefore bad. It's not that simple. Even in a story where where a female character is victimized just to serve a male character, sometimes things can be done with that, that even if that story is not for everyone, I think that there is value in the discussion of those stories. I personally, while understanding absolutely why everybody who, are, who doesn't like the story doesn't like it, I am a defender 
of Killing Joke because I think it does some interesting things in the discussion more so than the story does itself. This is not that story. This does not have that. This is a fill-in issue that by its very nature was designed to not affect the status quo. So the thing that Anna's complaining about where it's just doing this trauma to Rachel, it's doing this trauma to Rachel because I've got to write a story. What am I going to do? I guess I'll do something traumatic to Rachel. That's like- that yeah that's the story there's nothing there's nothing comes of it because you can't advance the characters because you are not the custodian of this world right i'm almost certain by edict when higgins was given the assignment it's like leave everybody exactly where they were when you found it because we don't know when the story is going to happen right so see i one thing i would kind of counter that with mav is, is i think to me this story is really an example of poor curation of intellectual property me too. Yeah. Higgins should not have had access to Days no. of Future Past or Mastermind no. or other relationships that Higgins is tinkering touch, with here. It's you weird. You don't touch that in the fill-in issue. It's exactly weird. It's bizarre. Like, do a demon druid. Nobody cared about demon druid. Yeah. He hadn't been seen in 30 years. It was fine, right? <laughs> like, this was weird. The most important thing to the X-Men, to the entire history, no matter what you like, the most important thing they've ever done is the Dark Phoenix Saga. So much so that two of the six movies have been about this, right? Like literally one third of our, our of our own of our on-screen appearances of X-Men have been dealing with this story. It is the most important storyline. Why would you let somebody screw with it in a exactly. villain issue? That's insanity. And he screwed with it and then he had to like undo everything they'd done because otherwise you can't since we never we're never going to get back to it you can't allow him to like tinker too much but like why allow him to tinker at all it's a crazy thing to even attempt i mean i want to just say like just a couple more things about just because we can been talking about trauma and then we can lose sight a little bit of the fact you know how important it is that this is specifically sexualized trauma Mm -hmm. with a female character who has a history of this whose mother has a history of this whose like family has a history of this from the same abuser yeah from literally the same abuser yeah which you which you know like again you could do things with that as a story i mean i will say Mm -hmm. for me as a female reader one of the sort of most disturbing things about the trope of sexualized violence is the way that it makes you feel unsafe in this world i mean just making the point again and again and again that no matter how many powers you have even if you're a cosmic being with the literal powers of a god you can still be raped and it's just like what is that doing for us in the context of a fantasy space that is supposed to primarily be about purveying power fantasies right and i'm not saying the fact that it purveys power fantasies is necessarily good it purveys a lot of negative power fantasies and yet it's just a huge part of my struggle to identify with female characters a lot of the time is just never feeling safe if i invest in a female character there's a good chance she's going to get raped it happens so incessantly that it can be really hard sometimes to because i absolutely agree with you mav that there can be ways of doing this kind of story that's really valuable and the example that i often go to and you know i think it's a good example because by a male writer improves that if you're doing this thoughtfully and Jessica not only Jones? it is alias yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah i mean and that's bendis too a writer that takes so much hate from people yeah. and yet i think mm-hmm. the original alias story was a really thoughtful and productive story about sexualized violence yeah. that actually made me feel included in the superhero genre because of the ways it acknowledged my complaints about the ways that sexualized violence stories are 
are often used in the superhero genre. So it can be done. And I wasn't like hyper offended by this comic. It's just something that I've seen a million times. So it's not like I was like all up in arms about it. But in terms of how it fits into that larger trope, because again, if it was just one comic, who cares, right? It's just one comic. I'd be like, it's problematic, move on. But it's part of an entire culture of doing this again and again and again. And one of the really disheartening things I did in my dissertation research about representations of the body in superhero comics was to do a survey of sort of the presence of sexualized violence on covers starring female superheroes from like the late 1970s into the early 80s. And it was a lot just kind of going through that and doing the numbers. (laughs) And you're just like, how many covers of like Ms. Marvel, the Carol Danvers one, a comic that was about a feminist hero supposedly being marketed to women, featured her in sexualized violence on the cover. And it's just like, it gets to you after a while. So it's just the thoughtlessness with which it was done here does really bother me in terms of that larger conversation. But I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I just wanted to highlight that. I think it's an important issue because that you're raising though because there's a weirdness in this issue because it's aware that it's doing it and Mm -hmm. there's one panel that i want to highlight in in particular it's when kitty because she's apparently a moron all of a sudden in this in this issue says but who could be behind all this and then kurt comes in and says and he phrases it as a riddle which is odd he goes (laughs) "Who, who else he's been after the phoenix power for quite some time and he's a master at manipulating the minds of others. And she says, <laughs> of course. I'm like, first off, fucking say mastermind. It's stupid. <laughs> like, no one talks like that. Again, like, no, th- this is why I was making fun of this issue at the beginning. He is aware that he's repeating tropes, right? Like, that is Higgins saying, look, we're doing the Dark Phoenix thing here. That's, you know, Kurt's aware of it. Kitty's aware of it. That's what we're doing here. So if you're aware of it, why are you doing it in this way? It's, again, why was he given access to this? It's weird. I will say, I just want to cover because Anna, you just said, you know, positives and negatives and stuff. We're being hard on this. And I want to make it clear that I actually don't hate this issue. I don't love it. I find this completely and utterly forgettable. We're being hard on it because that's the job of this show, right? Like, uh, is to criticize it. And largely my feelings about it are negative. But given some of the other spelling issues that I that I have hated on our show, this is almost entirely forgettable. If you skip this issue of Excalibur, you'd never know. Every time I do a read-through of this of this series, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this happened. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah. it, 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 it's almost meaningless. Well, can I come back to Darby? Because you said that, and I know from you know interacting with you on Twitter that you do have this passion for Rachel. Can I get you to talk about that a little bit about how you connect to this character because that might get us talking about some of the ways that I mean I don't want to say some of the ways that we might have done this story better because we often fan fiction things on this show and come sure, up with sure. pitches and rewrite it but I mean what is your attachment to that character? Like, how do you read some of the ways that her story is sort of grounded in trauma and the ways that she's working through that? Like, what defines her as a character to you? You know, when I was reading it as a kid in 1988, I, I this was sort of unconscious, but I, you know, as I've gotten older, hopefully wiser, I, I think my sort of attachment to Rachel is that she was dislocated. She was in every sense of the word and she had no real place anywhere, but then she finds it with, Kitty and with Kurt and the rest of the group. And then she, especially in Excalibur, she starts to assert herself or her identity. Uh, She's, you know, the comic makes a big deal out of the fact of her clothes and her hair. And she's more assertive and she's certainly more powerful now as the the host for the Phoenix. 
but her connection in particular to Kitty, and I'm I'm an avowed Rachel and Kitty stan. Um, <laughs> uh, um, in particular, sort of, it was her sort of, you know, she's on this journey, Rachel, at least in my mind, was on this journey of self-discovery. That person who she was in Days of Future Past in that timeline, she effectively died with everybody else. I mean, that person doesn't exist anymore. She can mm-hmm. never go back to it. She doesn't want to really as much as she longs for those people. And now she's in this place and she's actually liberated. She can be who really she wants to be. Who is that? It's a huge question mark. I think Claremont intended for her to be, I think Rachel was an avatar for Claremont of a lot of things. And this podcast has been, you know, illuminated a lot of that for me, stuff I didn't even know. And I, but made sense now looking back because I read Rachel and Kitty as a lot of people did. But not just those two, but just Rachel in general. And this comic, this issue, does a huge disservice to her because she's so powerful in so many ways. The issue before, she's throwing elbows at Galactus. She'll eventually throw haymakers <laughs> in six in uh, issue sixty one, and it just reduces her to this something you know, a, a tired trope, a, sort of a stock character. And so that is it is kind of offensive to me actually. You sort of you know, like we were saying, like Mav said, you sort of have to let it go. But it's that that's who Rachel is to me. She's someone who's discovering who she is and sort of sort of have to go through this thing here and this issue is what does she discover she about herself she learns nothing and we don't learn anything about her either would you say that you think part of her journey in Excalibur is sort of being faced with her having all the opportunities and all the power and trying to reckon with that means does that make sense as a question like is that part of what her lostness in the context of Excalibur is I think so there's this interesting thing with and I don't know if this is exactly what you mean but like I I would you know I always think they're always going shopping Kitty and Rachel are always sort of fixated on their clothes. There's an episode in issue 16 where they're hang- they're like captured and they're hanging upside down. And it's like Rachel's like, I couldn't get out of my costume if I wanted to. It goes from my boots to my neck or something. <laughs> Kitty's like, I could get you out of your costume. It's like, you know, it's like there there's this sort of subliminal fixation on everything. It, it never really registers for Rachel, I don't think. Uh, Kitty, it eventually does and fits and starts. But and then, of course, really the Kitty Rachel fandom is waiting still but that's another subject but i i think it's it's complicated i think i just think that the, there's never really been a handle which is why i think so many people read so many there's so many different interpretations of rachel and rachel and kitty and the whole thing because there's never really been a firm grasp on her and sort of that journey was sort of thwarted i feel like in the course of excalibur because she eventually just gets jettisoned out of the comics altogether at some point uh, a little bit later down the run and i mm-hmm. i don't know i'm probably not making any sense but no no no, no it no. makes total <laughs> sense yeah i mean it's Rachel is the character that I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of X-Men characters like this, but in terms of her combination of prominence and sort of fandom, I feel like she's the, one of the characters that has the most headcanon attached to her. Like, there are so many things that this character means to people, and people are almost constantly disappointed by her portrayal. And I don't know how to fix that. It, it needs someone who really understands the character to sort of take her up and make them her pet character, and she just doesn't had that for a really long time. She doesn't. She does not have sort of a champion in the way that I think Kitty does. Like Kitty is, I'm sure there are hundreds of writers out there that are dying uh, to write their Kitty Pride story. And I don't think Rachel, with the lone exceptional exception of me, and I am available Marvel, by the way. But (laughs) (laughs) oh no, there's lots of people out there that would be desperate to write Rachel. I think she just hasn't been in the right hands yet. Definitely, definitely. 
Well, can I ask, we haven't really talked about, I mean, we've been talking about Rachel's sexuality a bit here, but we haven't really talked about the Franklin relationship and what this is doing for us. I mean, we've asked questions about Rachel's sexuality on this podcast before, you know, uh, does she resonate with asexuality? Does she resonate with just not being interested in sexuality related to issues of trauma or she's just not in that space right now? Is she queer? Is she bi? Like, what is her sexuality? So what do we make of the relationship with Franklin? Do we see a value in Rachel having this relationship as part of her backstory? Or does it feel a little bit like straight washing for this character? Because I'm, I'm really of two minds on it. Sorry? Question of clarification. Yeah. Are, are you asking, because um, I, th- I think that's an important question. Are you asking in relationship to this issue? Or are you oh, asking yeah. in relationship to the character, the Rachel character? Yeah. Because this is where I do think we want to bring in days of future present mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent days of future past, but definitely days of future present. I am a ardent, <laughs> you talked about your dissertation. I'll talk about mine. I am an ardent <laughs> defender of headcanon. <laughs> I am, yeah. I very, very much am. I am, uh, not to go too much into my other show, but uh, about like literary theory and stuff. I'm very much of the belief that meaning is created in the mind of the reader, not necessarily in the writer. It's a contract between both. Okay. So I think if you need Rachel to be an asexual person, if you need uh, Rachel to be a queer person, a straight person, a transgender person, whatever you need Rachel to be, if you can make that work inside your head, that's what she is. So what I need Rachel to be Maybe not as big a fan as Darby, but I'm a big fan. I am a bigger fan of Ilyana, and this also um, works for her, and it were, particularly with the relationship with Kitty. I can't see any of them as asexual because, for my own personal reasons, I need them not to be. That's what I need. If you need <laughs> them to be, um, um, I get it, right? But because of my own random issues that I've had um, with sexuality, with trauma in the past, I need to know that they are okay to have a grown-up adult relationship that might be but might be non-conventional but that can work for them i need to know that she can have a relationship with kitty that is their normal okay (laughs) that is that is important to me so i see that but i also recognize that that's my headcanon and not other people's so i think Mm -hmm. that the relationship for people like me of having you know an explicit there's a love between rachel and franklin matters um and i need that to be not just a friendship i need that to be a passionate love for me that does not preclude her having a love for kitty any more so than i am 100 of the belief that kitty and i will and by and kitty i'm including kate pride as written today in marauders right kitty throughout her history to this point and moving into the future i believe does love Rachel. I also believe she loves Ilyana. I also believe she loves Peter Rasputin. Quill, yeah, whatever. He's a he's a flirtation, booty call, went too far, fine. But like I I do believe she has love for all of these people that is complicated and I feel Rachel is going through her own things as well. So I need stories like this, just not necessarily this one. A better one would be X-Men Annual number 14. (laughs) Days of Future Present, which does this well. I agree with you, Mav, and I thank you for sharing that because that was actually really lovely. But in terms of going all the way back to Days of Future Past, though, there's a strong suggestion in that story of, you know, uh, Kitty and Rachel having a certain type of relationship. I mean, Kitty's sort of a mentor figure, perhaps Mm -hmm. a mother figure, or it's some sort of relationship, right? Some sort of 
romantic relationship. And that's where the Kitty Rachel relationship obviously comes from, because that's the introduction of Rachel. And that's where it's sort of the depth of their bond comes from. So inserting a you know, <laughs> very attractive, sort of stereotypically attractive blonde guy to be a partner for Rachel into that story. Does it not kind of suggest we're really not wanting you to read this character as queer and we put this love interest for her into the story so that you don't read it that mm-hmm. way? Not for well, me, like, because I mean, and again, it, it varies by person, right? Yeah. Because for me, I agree. I agree with you that there is a strong suggestion of a relationship between. I'm going to distinguish between them by saying Kitty and Kate, just for the mm-hmm, listener. Mm-hmm. Um, I be, I agree that there is a suggestion of a relationship between Rachel and Kate, but there's clearly a relationship between Kate and future and future classes. They're clearly married, and I think there's also clearly a relationship between Rachel and Franklin. So I read this as a poly family. Not necessarily everyone's with everyone, but I read this as a in this world where we're literally being hunted, we've been able to let go of our preconceived notions and just have the relationships that we need us that we need us to have. So to me, I don't think she's not queer. I think that there's not an assumption of, okay, your sexuality is defined because we are saying your one true love is this one person. I think she has multiple relationships that are all complex with different characters. And that's part of what's important for me is that she can love both Peter and or Kitty, I'm saying here, can love Peter and Rachel and presumably Ileana. Um, Rachel can love Franklin and and Kitty, like I or Kate. That's kind of how I read it. So, but I understand how somebody else might not see it that way. For me, it doesn't preclude that. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm just kind of getting at the politics of it in yeah. terms of this yeah. Franklin relationship gets to be explicit and the other relationship doesn't get to be explicit. Therefore, mm-hmm. one is canon and what is not. Yeah, then that's in here. It's explicit, but again, I don't know. I don't love this story. I don't know that like um, I feel like the relationship with Franklin is more explicit in Days of Future Past than any of the other relationships. I think it's just that we read it that way because of heteronormative, mononormative yeah, yeah, standards. Yeah. I think. Um, myself just real quick I, I i agree largely with mav i i i think in one of the problems i think is that claremont in the comics have really even today have never really been able to articulate kitty or rachel or a lot of these themes um they're they easily do it with more, more recent characters but these legacy characters they seem to struggle with claremont had his own restrictions back in the day that mm-hmm. inarticulation then seeps through to the audience which a lot of us sort of recognizes not being able to articulate what we sort of feel and what we're experiencing and who we are in life and so you recognize these people who can't quite you know they're in heteronormative relationships but are they really what do they really feel they have these moments kitty and rachel are built entirely out of moments you know like 40 years of moments um that people that people have built mountains out of and including myself and i think that's sort of the biggest challenge and it's all bound up in those things that the politics of the time the the head canon um, all this stuff. Yeah, Prashu, did you have thoughts about this, Andrew? Because we haven't heard from you in a while. Um, yeah, I, I'm sort of similar to Mav, but also departing from Mav, because I, I think Mav is looking at this as subjective, right? I don't know that it can be consistent, and if it can't be consistent, then it's more than subjectivity. It's more like a like a double think. I, like yeah, I believe, yeah. No, I think I'm actually saying what, what I think you were saying, but. Um, <laughs> Like we get this, More this or less. <laughs> we get this issue where we've got this relationship with Franklin. I do think there's a little bit of straight washing in this issue. Yes. 
but there's also a really intimate scene with um, there's also that hug at the end rachel and kitty yeah so i I don't think you're supposed to try to make it consistent and see rachel as like bisexual i I think you're allowed to perceive it as both simultaneously operating on independent streams like a multiverse of rachel's sexuality (laughs) i am phoenix i am (laughs) Minnie. exactly yeah i definitely want to agree with that and i definitely agree with that in terms of the ways that we can interact with this on a fanish level but it's also very clear that as soon as her very stereotypically attractive blonde former boyfriend shows up she's like kitty kitty who yeah and i understand (laughs) i understand that there's mental manipulation going involved and everything (laughs) but that's painful it's a little bit painful to read well also because it's an echo right like i mean you you talked about it earlier but it's it's an echo of the trauma on her mother of Mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened with oh okay mastermind i'm in love with him now you are okay but it's better done when claremont did it because again he had 40 issues (laughs) you know like it wasn't 18 pages well you know and just we talked about that a little bit earlier but just slotting rachel into the gene role doesn't work either because rachel's not the same person as gene i mean (laughs) that should be obvious two women with red hair are not the same person and (laughs) so i mean in terms of one of my issues with sort of the evolution of rachel is not articulating as strongly as they could the ways that she's different from gene and we do get lots of moments in excalibur where the ways that she's different are articulated but this issue definitely isn't one of them because it's just slotting her into her story because we could go on and on about the dark phoenix saga and its relationship to second wave feminism and sort of scott's journey and gene's journey and how that's bound up with the phoenix and ideas about female power and that's really complex the way it plays out in that story but like you're just gonna like slap rachel with the same story that's not the same context it's not the same era she's not the same person so it just doesn't make sense and it's a problem with higgins in general too that we see very clearly in this issue that that all his female characters have the exact same voice yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, the males aren't much better. <laughs> I was going to say, I almost don't want to talk about the Megan Kurt story, but we I should. We have to. Yeah, yeah, we should. So, yeah. So, <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> Kurt's not great in this issue. I don't like how he's behaving. And we've talked about the nice guy trope with him before. And we've said that he is better than that or more complicated than that for the most part. Even in the last... I know, even in the last (laughs) Higgins Slim issue, you know, Asha Jeffers was on and she made an argument that she didn't think he fell completely into the nice guy trope, that it was more complicated than that. Here, it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) He feels to me here like he's actively manipulating her into sleeping with him in a way that is not present in other issues of Excalibur and they hooked up here right like that like that's not just me they had a physical relationship yeah I mean like they they might not have had sex but like literally and I quote she finally seems to be coming around but I've got to be careful can't move too quickly with someone who's obviously on the rebound we both have to be sure of what we're doing and there's no telling how Brian is going to react he hardly seems to be the man I knew you met him that day screw you but um like like uh megan i could have teleported us yep. it would be better if you ha- if you saved your strength for something, something more important. important and any idea where we're heading nowhere in particular kurt just someplace that we can be alone okay so god all of kurt's internal monologue you should like i wish this was the video on i'm just like folding into myself in pain it's so like that voice for him is so gross it's so bad again i'm okay with there being characters that think like this i think it's even an interesting story this is not the guy that even in the worst of kurt like uh the dirty pair issue which i keep pointing to you know where he's like i don't care which one i made make out with but you know i at least understand that guy this is not this is someone else this is not 
like well he's it's manipulative not like i mean yeah he's, there's been some problematic flirting with him in the past and i mean the dirty pair scene is supposed to be played for comedy so i don't know what to make of that one it's just a bad right. joke to me but i mean this, that's so this different is, this is actively this is, manipulative. Yes, vulnerable yeah. woman uh-huh. vulnerable woman let me play this right so i can get in her pants that's i'd like to have him have the like internal thoughts that say that <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i will say like one thing and it was the thing i remember the most from this issue was the fact that they go off together to somewhere private i don't hate the idea that they slept together at some point i think that we'll have some listeners that don't like that but I don't higgins hate... doesn't get to be the one to write that i know yeah i know it's a, definitely, fill- it's a definitely. filling issue it's a filling issue that apparently happened months ago if we're to believe the chron- the chronology that the caption wants us to place it's in you know at some point in the past brian went off and kurt decided to take advantage of the situation they slept together or not they at least kissed right like i i I can't see that not happening and then this issue leads us to believe that oh by the way that wasn't really brian so now you've just screwed screwed over these people and it's not clear when brian was replaced i i'm not willing to give him enough of a pass saying he's never been a bastard you know like yeah yeah like like especially given that again i said this issue entirely must take place between two pages of, of excalibur number 11 so i don't think he could have been gone that like i like it says some time ago brian was replaced i think that was yesterday i don't think that was weeks ago you know like, i think it was like yesterday he was replaced and they didn't notice so fine so i'm not willing to like just wipe the slate clean and make brian innocent in all this but it does come across as super creepy and problematic it's on good. everybody's part here yeah even and megan's is not great here <laughs> yeah everybody is acting weird i'm I, I don't know i'm backtracking a little bit on my comment about it being okay if they slept together because i do stand by that but it would depend how it was done i mean obviously the way it's done here where it's just sort of slid into this issue oh that was a horrible turn of phrase anyway um the fact that it's just sort of like a little element of this story that is off panel and everybody's acting so out of character i don't like it done in that way i think there's a way that you could do it and it doesn't necessarily mean i'm shipping megan and kurt as like a you know one true pairing kind of thing but the idea that they did take pleasure with each other at some point i'm okay with depending on how that was handled and again i think people are going to have very different opinions about that um interestingly but um i look forward to our tweets they do both come back in different clothes megan obviously so but kurt but kurt is wearing different pants when he comes back kurt has an all-white outfit he comes back he comes back in a similar shirt but black pants and a red sash like they they where did he get the extra pants they oh went God. they they went shopping and left their old clothes behind somewhere i don't i don't know i would <laughs> something I would, happened i would kind of like the part of the comic that we didn't see where kurt and megan go shopping together because that seems fun sure because shopping that's what happened uh-huh <laughs> well darby what is your kind of take on the megan kurt brian potentially a megan kurt brian courtney relationship um in excalibur in general like did you root for any of these characters to get together with each other or i'll just leave it at that what's your take on that on that triangle or quadrangle i remember uh when i was younger i did like the idea of kurt and megan i i thought 
they made a lot of sense together. I don't think I was probably picking up a lot of some of this sort of, you know, the, the negative aspects of this, especially here. But I, I hated Brian. I didn't like him at all. I, uh, <laughs> I, I like I liked Megan. I love Megan as this potential idea. Uh, she was this figure who could just she could, you know, she could transform. She could change gender. She could change form. She could change shape. She was glorious. She was sort of this living avatar of all these themes in the story that never ever really come together and part of the problem i think is just this part of that is sort of that uh, triangle quadrangle where they're they're trying to do some soap opera type stuff that doesn't really work courtney i i liked courtney i liked saturnine but i didn't like brian so i wasn't too invested so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? Because I mean, if Megan and Kurt are physical with each other, it changes the dynamics of the whole quadrangle so much. So that's why I'm a little bit unsure about it. Because again, it would just depend how it was handled. I don't know. So I, I like it as a way to get by the double standard that, that Brian yeah. was openly having an affair. Like, why shouldn't Megan? I know. I mean, that, that's, that's, per, that's pretty much my stance as well. Although I don't think it fits her character that she would do yeah, it, though. Yeah, I can see that. It, you said it yourself, Anna. It's not a decision for Higgins to make. Yeah. It, it, it's weird to happen. And I think Megan and Kurt could have an affair. I think if everyone's cheating, the story's more interesting, especially given everything that I just said about the Polly family, right? Like, I think that it's bad, but I think it's an interesting story because Brian is absolutely the guy who will absolutely cheat on his girlfriend and then be livid when he finds out that she's doing the same, 100%. right? That's, that is 100% who Brian is. And that's a story. It's not served well, just being dropped into a fill-in issue. Um, yeah. And especially ambiguously so, because I mean, I'm not making a joke. I don't know how else to read it other than, you know, Kurt manipulated Megan into sleeping with him and she's into it, I guess. Oh. and especially since um <laughs> you know we have the moment of like her her saying you know i need you to save your strength i mean like there's no other way to read that other than she's being flirty about it and this is during an era where she's definitely flirting with kurt a lot like it, it's clearly intended to be taken sexually the only the way reader. That it would work for me, I think. I mean, Megan definitely does have to be the instigator because if Kurt's the instigator, he comes off super creepy, much like he does in this issue. And this issue tries to have it both ways in a way because Megan is the instigator. She's the one who picks him up in her arms and takes him somewhere to do whatever with him, to right? Be alone. Yeah, mm -hmm. and yet all the monologue and everything is his, so he still comes off as the one that's manipulating her into taking the lead, so it just doesn't come off right at all. Um, I guess we should do final thoughts. I'm sure there's things that we didn't touch on that I don't know whether you guys are going to be anxious to touch <laughs> on them or not, but if anybody has any final thoughts before we leave this issue forever in the whatever point in the past <laughs> it's supposed to exist in, speak now or, or forever hold your peace. I would like to point out that the ending is ripped off from um, Superman Annual number eight for the man who has everything. Oh, God. And you can't do that because that's an Alan Moore story. And this oh, is the mythology of Captain Britain, which Alan Moore kind of built. Never caught that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Good story. Better story. Great story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Never caught on to that. Uh, uh, wow. Okay. Okay, I was like unclear on what Mastermind's plot here was, which relates yeah, to that ending. what was his brilliant plan? <laughs> He was going to steal the Phoenix Force or... Yeah, kissing her. 
<laughs> yes. You know, you, you know how when you kiss somebody and you get everything that belongs to them, that is a thing that happens. That is a power that it, we all it have. It does for Rogue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, really? Like, I mean, is that a dumb question? Like, was it super unclear? Yes. It was very unclear. <laughs> so I'm like, is that how Mastermind's powers work? That wasn't really never what before, they were doing in Dark Phoenix Saga. Yeah. Yeah. Ne never before, never again. But, uh, you know, like the 40 issue Dark Phoenix Saga, there was a lot of really subtle, intense manipulation that went to going to where he went with Gene and then it didn't work right yeah this apparently he just figured out no 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 if you kiss somebody and then you just have their power yeah science i mean my <laughs> other little comment was just on clothes again which there are some good clothes throughout this issue i liked kitty's sort of two-piece matchy set with the pale yellow and i also really liked mm. the the green outfit that megan comes yes. back in after the trip wherever she goes with kurt with the midi skirt and the crop top and it's sort of like a sporty look that is a hundred percent something i would wear and it's in her costume colors which is amazing really like her future outfit. costume colors for her though it's yeah that's right it didn't occur to me and then as soon as i was saying it i was like yeah that makes no sense but maybe it's <laughs> yeah, advertising her yeah it's advertising her intention to wear green in the future it makes no sense <laughs> mav did you have a specific gripe no, before i no, give darby I, the last I, word it, it's yeah i mean i will i will forget that i read this again the second we're done with this episode so it's fine i mean i don't love it but you know as hard as i was on it it's such a forgettable issue it it, it does not offend me anywhere near as it as much as it probably sounds like it did in retrospect listening back to this show it, yeah it's more like a oh yeah that was a thing they did once and you know and next next episode we get to talk about nth man which makes far less sense than this so you know <laughs> that this issue is that issue is wild fun though i'm looking forward to that one actually yeah but it makes no sense but okay i'm looking at the last page right now and the panel at the top of the page where they're all you know having coffee and i will say kurt's behavior is super problematic and i'm not excusing it in any way but kind of like the face that he has there as everybody's talking about what happened and he's like sipping his tea like oh man <laughs> yeah it's like oh it wasn't you and i just slept with your girlfriend yeah, yeah. That's her. <laughs> <laughs> he looks distinctly uncomfortable in my headcanon in that scene mm -hmm. darby i will give you the final word Oh boy. Um, maybe this is being too charitable. I will say that I did like when Rachel does turn the tables on Mastermind, she says, uh, once you tasted the power, now you will deal with the emptiness that is left mm. behind. And that made me think of, I loved it. I'd love that she finally does turn the tables and gets out of this awful scenario. But it, it reminded me of this this quote from uh, Dr. Faustus, Mephistopheles. If Dr. Faustus asks Mephistopheles, what is hell? And he says, hell is the absence of God's esteem. It's like, it's not a real, it's not a place. It's not a, you know, it's just your absence of that power. And I, I like that idea for someone like Mastermind. You're just empty. You just don't have anything. Well, I liked that for Rachel too. Like being like, you want to be me. You don't even understand this power. You don't under understand the trauma that informs my ability to control this power. Like that could be a really awesome moment. And that was probably actually my favorite moment of the comic too. Like the panel where she's sort of attacking him with the Phoenix fire, which is a very sexualized panel actually. But for me, it almost worked in that moment because the way that she sexualized in that panel and then sort of phallically exercising that sexual power against the person who'd been manipulating her that sort of works for me i think your mileage on that could vary but in that moment i did find there was a sense of power to her that i enjoyed at the very least my king i couldn't do it excalibur cannot be lost other men do as i command 
One day, the king will come, and the sword will rise again. Um, I guess we're gonna wrap up there. Um, we've already mentioned some of your work, Darby, but that was a solid hour ago. So remind our listeners again, <laughs> if you would like them to find you online, where can they find you and what work of yours should they check out? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, you can find me on my website, uh, darbyharn.com and you'll find all the books there. And, um, yeah, Ever the Hero is actually the first book in this series of books I'm doing that sort of deal with sort of superpowered characters and and things like that. Uh, the second book, uh, Judgment of Aline, is out, and then the third book, which is the one I mentioned earlier that was giving me such problems, uh, that'll be out a little bit later. And um, that's uh, that's called Nothing Ever Ends, and and that is definitely benefited from the podcast, like I said earlier, and also sort of deals with sort of Excalibur themes in the sense that it's kind of a cross time caper in the sense that there's no time travel or a caper. So, um, but, but maybe Excalibur fans will find something familiar in there and, and definitely, you know, I, I think some of this was conscious, some of it wasn't, but definitely some of the characters, uh, in particular, uh, Kit Baldwin, uh, who is the heroine of the story, um, is definitely takes some cues from Rachel. I think I've become Ooh. more conscious of that as I, uh, as I've listened to the podcast. I like the sound of that. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad that you mm-hmm. reached out and we could have you on the pod. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is this has been fantastic. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 28, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number 27, Real People, featuring Chris Claremont, Barry Windsor-Smith, Bill Sienkiewicz, and Nthman, as we mentioned. We've also got a very exciting guest for that episode in the form of a fellow X-Men podcaster. You'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another character-building conversation. Thank you, Darby, for lending us your writerly insights. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. That's it. Yeah, thank you so much again, Darby. I hope it's had a good time chatting with us. This is great. Yeah.